What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's officially spring. Red buds, cactus blossoms, and green shoots are appearing, and people are peeking out from under the covers. We can break free of restrictions from COVID and be outdoors again, as in early childhood when riding our bikes might have been just the thing for being cooped up at home. Nature is a balm to our frustrations. As our guest today, Linda Joy Myers, knows, outside might be the safest place for kids when home is a threat. As a result, the landscape we grow up in might just grow up inside of ourselves. And maybe we can get outside of our past by telling our stories. Here to talk about it is Linda Joy Myers, author of Song of the Plains and Don't Call Me Mother, two memoirs published by She Writes Press and president of the National Association of Memoir Writers. Good morning. Welcome, Linda. <laughs> Hi, Diane. Thank you so much. And I love your uh, phrase about how landscape grows inside of us. That's <laughs> beautiful. Well, you did a great job of portraying that in your book. We're going to toggle um, between um, your role as a character, an author, a teacher, and a mentor. Your book, Song of the Plains, I think really um, the sense of place became a dimension in your story. And now you talk about um, how you've reached a contented point in your life, having written these two memoirs, Don't Call Me Mother, A Daughter's Journey from Abandonment to Forgiveness, which was a finalist for the Forward Book of the Year and finalist in the Indie Excellence Awards. It won a BAIPA Gold Medal Award. And these uh, memoirs are not just groundbreaking, they're deeply personal, and they're really beacons for those of us looking for a way to become fearless within ourselves. You've written books on memoir, Breaking Ground on Your Memoir and the Magic of Memoir, co-authored with Brooke Warner. And you are a speaker and uh, a coach for writers. So maybe people who are listening or trying to figure out how to take those jotted notes down throughout their lives um, and build it into something, um, the power of healing to free us from the past through writing. But now you've, you've reached a point where you've, you've done all of this and you're, you've, you've reached a point where I feel as though there's some contentedness you live with your cats and your roses and all of these um, dimensions and roles in your life. How would you describe yourself now at this point? Mm. <laughs> well, <clears throat> uh, yes, I'm very contented and writing these memoirs, which took <clears throat> many years over actually decades, uh, contributed to me um, settling in with this is the story I lived, and here it is through uh, the eyes of, you know, a long, long perspective. And, um, you know, what I find is that by putting things into words and getting them on the page, and I think many writers find this too, you, you stand back and you, you see yourself as the, both the character and the narrator, so it, it has this layers of distance and layers of, seeing and being with uh, everything that, you know, we've lived through. But, you know, actually, I'm very content, but I'm also shaking things up by I'm writing a novel about World War II. And Mm -hmm. yesterday, uh, despite my protestations to the contrary of I don't think I have any more memoirs in me, I began jotting down some fragments of possible uh, new stories, and so you know things are always tugging at me uh, to keep learning and keep doing new stuff. And let me tell you, it's hard to write a novel. 
So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I just, I'm, I'm just very curious about things, and things tap me on the shoulder and won't leave me alone. So, so there's that too, which is absolutely a blessing. The restlessness, it's wonderful. Well, you've always been a kind of historian, right? You're, you're always digging mm-hmm. around in the, in the past. And as Faulkner said, you know, the past is not dead. It's not even the past. <laughs> so, right. I, I know. I love that quote. Yes, I mean, you know, the fascinating thing is that history contains the future, but we don't know it when we're living it. And so to be able to go back and... Uh, the novel is definitely based on memoirs. I mean, stimulated and inspired by true stories of what people actually did and, and you know, how they saved people. I mean, there's, there's a whole thread there. Um, and, you know, in the history that I explored, I explored through genealogy and diaries and various things. I mean, I was always looking for the I guess looking for clues, like, you know, did did my mother or my grandmother, what were they thinking or what were they going through earlier in their lives that, that led indirectly or directly to some of the decisions they made later? And we don't, you know, we don't really necessarily get full answers, but I took it as far as I could. And it, like they say, writing is about the questions, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily the answers. And the clues. I mean, I love that. The breadcrumbs that you're you're following, you know, mm-hmm. back to a path. And you, you talk in um, Sound, uh, um, Sound of the Plains that um, there is this connection to England and mm. your, your mother frequently um, traveled to, India, in, in, to England as did uh, you, um, you know. In a My grandmother of, did, yes. Your, your, uh-huh. your grandmother with, with mm-hmm. whom you lived. So yes. for for listeners, right, I, I skipped mm-hmm. a generation. The, the, okay. the, your mom, she was, your mother was very definitely not present, I would say, abandoning. Mm-hmm. Turns yeah. out she had that um, as a constant in her life as well. You learned that your mm-hmm. grandmother was equally as abandoning, and you had to fight back to, to, to claim your own life and say, I'm not that person. Um, mm-hmm. Which I, th- I think the strength of these books, um, it really, it, I think it must have bolstered you. But this place, England, you went a number of times. Now you've got uh, a granddaughter yourself, Zoe Joy. Your name's yeah. Lovely. Um, how do you explain these affinities? And did the connection with England lead you to this novel about the World War II? <laughs> Wow, what a question. Yep, that's a, that's a leap, isn't it? Well, it's my grandmother took me in when I was six and raised me because nobody else was doing that, and I was in kind of bad shape by that time. And so she, for many, many years, uh, she was this uh, beacon of education, and she was self-taught. She, she herself didn't have a lot of formal education, but she saw as a, as a poor you know, farm child, that some people had different lives uh, than the women around her, and she decided she was going to, you know, try to find that. So as a woman does in, in, did in those days, the way for a woman to advance was to marry up, um, and she did that twice. <laughs> so the second marriage landed her in Chicago with a man who had money, and it was the 30s, and she, I don't know what, I think reading about English history probably made her want to go, but I don't actually know for sure. So she made her first trip to England. Now, when I grew up with her, she was always talking about England. She was reading English literature. She had me reading English literature. Bless her. When I was eight years old, I read Treasure Island. <laughs> um, kind of a tough book to get through at that age, but... Um, You know, she inspired me beyond this little town. She moved to a town in Oklahoma to live near her best friend in those years, in the 50s, raising me. And she also talked about World War II all the time. Now, when I was growing up, World War II uh, had just 
recently ended. I mean, it ended in 45. Uh, as wars do, they end slowly, kind of, you know, people readjust gradually to regular life. And it had affected everybody in America, too, in a different way than Europe. But mm-hmm. she talked about it, and then there was the programs on PB, well, what became PBS Channel, the educational channel on World War II. And I saw, when I was, I think, 13, what is now called the series World at War. And my grandmother would <laughs> uh, get up there and yell at the TV and yell at Roosevelt, why didn't we help Churchill more? And, mm-hmm. you know, we let them stand alone. She would get very worked up about these things. Mm-hmm. And I was very curious. And so she was sort of, she and her friends that would talk about World War II were the embodiment of having lived through something that I knew nothing about, but they talked about it a lot. So um, I became curious, but the thing that got me all the way into researching World War II for the last, I don't know, 50 years, really, um, was I worked in the music library at University of Illinois, and a Time magazine cover came across the desk, and it had a picture of Hitler on it. Mm-hmm. And I read that magazine from cover to cover because it was written in the now of 1938 without the perspective of anything else that was going to come. And I just had to understand how this could happen. And so my grandmother's love history, you know. Yeah. What did it say, and, the Time magazine? I mean, what? how did they purport Hitler to be at that well, time? Well, he was a, uh, I mean, what from what I remember, and I've looked it up since a little bit, but he was a um, man with ideas. He developed Germany from the from the you know the the poverty and the hunger after World War One. He had done this good thing and that good thing, and he was a talker. He was uh, talked and charmed people a little bit like somebody in recent memory in America. Um, and mm-hmm. so people listened, and people wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, and they didn't know they were dealing with a sociopath, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, uh, so the whole English thing, so she went, I knew she'd gone once, and I, I could see how much she loved England and the way that she talked about England. And then year, all these years later, I decided to do the research, and I was so shocked on Ancestry.com, I started squealing, my kitties jumped off the couch. I mean, it was quite a scene around here. I found all these trips that she'd made, these other trips. I tracked her trips, the ship, how long she was there, when she went in, when she went out. And she went five times to England. I'm like, oh, my God, no wonder. I mean, it gave me this sense of her as she really wanted to have this bigger life and was Mm -hmm. fascinated. And her husband's money could pay for the trips, and so she went. Wow, and she she fell into these affected um, British accents too yes. at times, right? Oh <laughs> right, it's like it's social so embarrassing in Oklahoma. <laughs> Yeah, and and in Oklahoma, you also talk about like yeah, how you and your cousins or your cousins especially, you were mm-hmm. quite mannerly, but at the table might lick their knives. I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> lick their knives, yeah. but be careful doing that. Like there is an edge. But I mean, she obviously would poo-poo that because of, you know, the British oh aristocracy and you know the the, the yeah. obsession well, with the, the British and the monarchy that certainly exists today. Well, yes, I mean she. She loved, she was very mystical, though. Like, I'll never forget this time, and because I was still young, and she, she talked about standing in front of a castle, and I wish I knew which one, but I don't, but a castle in the mist. And she sensed she'd been born at the wrong time. Now, that is not something everyone says, you know? I mean, we, ha- mm-hmm. we hear people saying this, but there she was, older, yeah living in Oklahoma, raising me, all that was behind her, and she had this, she read poetry. I mean, she was really interested in, you know, these other layers of life, even though I think eventually her illness, which became clear later, um, defeated her, but uh, manic depression illness, but 
but she she opened all these doors and windows for me, getting me into music, having me read, reading poetry, you know, even though it was a little boring at the time, and I wasn't quite sure why she was just insisting, but she knew that these other worlds were bigger than the ones we saw day to day, and, you know, that's what I'm doing now, <laughs> making bigger worlds, you know, with writing, and... Exactly. And what you're doing, and you know, so wow. Well, well, thank you. I mean, it's also you say imagination can take you places, and it can only take you so far. But I'm fascinated mm-hmm. that there's this duality. I mean, Hitler turned out to be an absolute criminal, mm-hmm. you know, against humanity, the most horrific person mm-hmm. in in our you know in our time or our understanding of the century and there was this duality you saw him on the cover of time magazine yeah. you saw you saw your grandmother with these perfect manners and that at home she became brutal i mean she be, yeah. she she was corporal she was punishing she was critical i mean she was abusive yeah. Um, and and therefore you and there you retreated into music and sounds and um, took yourself away through the imagination available through music. Um, you know that was quite quite a coping mechanism for for a young person. Um, I wondered if if music became your kind of home, your kind of psychic home for a while. Mm. Yes, I mean. Um she introduced me to the piano. I mean, she wanted me to do things that she'd never had the opportunity to do. And I think she tried to get my mother. Well, my mother did learn the piano, but uh, I was her captive audience, you know, <laughs> and she was mm-hmm. determined to to, to uh, do these things. And, you know, the whole thing about kids practicing while other kids are outside playing. But, yes, uh music grabbed me and when then I discovered she I discovered the joys of string music uh, through a teacher that danced his way into our fourth grade class with his violin I fell in love with the music I fell in love with him and he became a beautiful healing uh, mentor to me uh, with the cello so we decided I would play the cello because it was you know uh, mm-hmm. Less competition and a beautiful instrument, and through being and learning the cello, and then being in the youth symphony, and then later in the larger symphony in this small town. It was a university town, you know, so there was a few things going for it there. I had friends. I I found myself transported. I mean, being in the cello section playing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is is a surround sound experience, mm-hmm. you know, that that can just take you other places. And then I, I was writing about this yesterday. It's very hard to write about music and what it does to you, but, you know, the way that we would all share these glances while we were playing yeah. of, of love, you know, of, of, and, you know, we were all swept up together. It was, Really, really beautiful, and I could go home and face some of these other things afterward, you know. Well, right, you'd made a connection. You'd connected, mm. um, you know, to others through this love, through the eye contact, through the smiles mm-hmm. when it was, you know, going well, through something that didn't have any on- ominous threat. And I, I think yeah. like that. That is, you know, I wonder about kids now, like, where is their sense of connection coming from? We've got mm-hmm. a pause. We've got a pause for a, a break right now. But when we come back, we are going to talk about the empty expanse of the plains, how the idea of home evolves, where it might be today, and how we can find it. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Linda Joy Myers. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. 
The aim is to serve riders who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Linda Joy Myers, who was just describing the sensation of being in the orchestra as a young person and making connections and actually tending to your own warmth and to your own inner fire, Linda Joy. It sounds to me that that tended to yourself in a way that your environment wasn't. Talk to us a little bit about then transcribing that feeling of transcending the the really harsh elements of your environment when you started writing and putting things on the page how does that work what's memoir <laughs> to you yeah what's- well it works with many drafts <clears throat> but <laughs> let's get down to like moments of creation here for a minute because i think what we all start with is what happened you know what happened when and kind of getting grounded in the in the in the real world aspects of what was going on and um but the other layer that we're always trying to create in all writing including memoir is how do you, how do you create a feeling for someone else to grab hold of um you know like in all the arts how do you create a feeling and so i learned that it takes a lot of free writing and doing, you know, I wrote, I wrote my story in poetry first because uh-huh. I was both afraid and didn't think I could do it in prose. I mean, prose doesn't allow for the spaces. Uh, well, current, there a lot of prose does, but my view of it at the time was that prose is going to ask me to knit together fragmented pieces, and I wasn't ready for a while, mm-hmm. but having written poetry and creating uh, imagery, creating sensual moments that are experiential helped me then when it came to going beyond the what happened version of both memoirs. I mean, the second one was a lot easier to write than the first one, which took many, many years and lots of, you know, I just needed to do a lot of learning about prose writing But the way that I experienced it, and I was kind of doing this yesterday, is I sort of lift off from that grounded place into a kind of a, I don't know what you call it, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but almost like a soul journey into imagery and sensation, association, Mm -hmm. feeling, thinking of words that are like a bong, uh, a sound almost in your in your psyche, and how do we both recognize that and then try to create it? And so yesterday I didn't do it very well, but I got a few seeds planted, and part of what inspired me is I was sitting outside in the sun, and the birds were singing in my tree, my beautiful tree that is just leafed out, and these other birds were answering on another tree next door, and it was in that space that I even thought of writing something new about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my life. And I, that was kind of interesting, you know. It was in the, the moment of nature that opened a space for me. 
Well, you've given us uh, the sensory experience of immersing into the wheat fields of the plains of your childhood. I was really mesmerized by that and felt that it connected to something others have talked about, which is this kind of void that exists in us. Um, the, the sense of emptiness that when we look out at a vast ocean or a plain or a desert, it connects with something inside of us that we feel that we don't always acknowledge, but is a kind of vastness that, you know, we can either fill with junk or we can fill with really good tidbits of, you know, juicy stuff like, like nature, like, like the communication of birds. And I'm so interested that you said it was that um, moment of sort of silence between the two birds talking to one another, because I think that through a background like yours, I wonder if you don't have a a kind of radar for reading (laughs) between the lines, right? Because nobody told you anything. You didn't know where your mother was. She'd left. You didn't know where your father was. He'd left. Um, You didn't know where your grandmother had been, how to account for all of her differentness, her almost uh, eccentricity. Yeah. And you had to read between the lines of all these polite conversations. I wonder if it gave you a kind of sixth sense or a kind of radar. The children do that. You know, they learn. uh, I once wrote a poem about how I assessed my grandmother's mood from my bedroom because I was afraid to come out of my room and see what she was like that given day because I never knew quite what I'd find. This was She started to change when I was about 10 or 11, so after that, there, it was a little more fraught. And so it was how hard she set her coffee cup down on the saucer in the living room, and I could hear that, mm-hmm. and how hard her heels hit the floor as she went to the kitchen to get more coffee. Ah. And I would assess. Her mood. But, you know, children who grow up in trauma, children who grow up in fear, uh, anyone, everyone, I mean, we all do this. We listen for the clues for safety and for danger, and we do prepare ourselves, um, you know, I think, for for whatever whatever we can manage. But I'd like to contrast that with then... So the other thing that happens in Oklahoma uh, is is storms come. I mean, we're out in the middle of the plains. There's nothing to stop the wind or the rain or the, all the stuff that comes blowing in from the Rockies. And so this, this landscape is a landscape of, <clears throat> you know, uh, we, we can see the storm coming, but we don't know what it'll do to us. And that's a kind of an interesting psychological state as well. I do have to say that when the winds came, not the tornado, I mean, we didn't actually have an actual tornado blessedly come, but the strong winds of the plains, I would feel deeply um, touched and moved literally, physically, and reached at by forces greater than myself that I found comforting. Uh-huh. I mean, well, at least it's just the wind. It's not somebody, you know, hitting me. It's the wind, and, and it's a natural force, and it brings with it, you know, different kinds of weather. And I would stand in the wind and almost hear it talk to me. So I suppose I had a little bit of my grandmother's mysticism in there. But really, there's one passage in Don't Call Me Mother where I can still remember what the wind said, and it told me that life would get better, and it told me that there was a lot beyond what I was going through, and it gave me hope. Who knows what that's all about, but it helped. I love that it's something bigger than you. It's something bigger than your life, and that it was reassuring that there was something out there and that it spoke to you. Um, I think I think it doesn't really matter where that comes from. I, I think the important <laughs> thing is that it connects to your source. Some source connects to your source. Um, yeah, I was really you, blessed to have those moments, you know, and I had, I had a lot of them. And the reason I, well, I put the planes in both books because it's part of me. Um, there, there's, there's a way that 
even now, even if I just look at a picture of the Great Plains with that huge sky and the particularly the gold and wheat uh, spread out for miles on every side, something happens inside, you know, there's, there's this, it is a home. Um, I mean, it is, it is a, a grand home of, of place. And I know that for many people, people write about the beach, people write about the mountains, you know, people write about places in the world. And those places are implanted, <laughs> you know, in the psyche and in the soul of of us as humans, and they invite us to come back and visit them, and both metaphorically now maybe, but then in in real life too. Well, you were you had receptivity also to to the landscape, to its messages, and I think that that was an extra sensitivity that you experienced. You've you've gone on to actually describe home as something that also becomes cellular, right? That, that it's in our DNA because yeah. the, dust, the dust is sweeping into your breath. The yeah. breath is going into your body. Talk about some of that, how that conflates and becomes part of mm-hmm. your actual self. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. When I was young, I, I knew a lot about um, the history of Oklahoma. Oklahoma history is really quite interesting. And I would, uh, I, I, I could one time I remember I could almost see the the horses and the and the native uh, people riding by in the in the wind of my imagination but I mean the great plains I uh, grew up learning this and then I did a lot of research about the different mesozoic and different eras but the great plains where we lived was an inland sea and mm-hmm. literally, there are fossils everywhere, and the dust and the dirt and everything are, some of it, I mean, I, you know, some of it are, are bits of bone. And I, as I revised Don't Call Me Mother, and as I went on into Song of the Plains, I, I well, we're back to history again, you know, uh, I mused about how it was that really we are incorporated into into the landscape that we're experiencing, and this is how I, I saw it, um, you know, years later. And you feel that ocean of, you see the wheat blowing, that's one way to look at that ocean, but it is huge. I mean, you know, you've heard all these people talk about how they had no idea how big America was till they drove across the Great Plains for days. Mm-hmm. There's almost nothing. Um, and people tell me that they didn't even realize Oklahoma was a real place until they read my book, because most people fly over it. I mean, I'm generalizing hugely. I mean, I know people who live there. We all, you know, know people who live in the Great Plains, maybe. But, but uh, you know, like, I think a writing is an opportunity to share a view of a place that other people don't have, wouldn't know about. Right. I mean, I know I get that about the beach when I read about people who live on the East Coast and they go climbing through the rocks or they, they you know, do something at the beach that I'm like, what are they doing? I don't really know, but they're taking me on a journey into this world with them and mm-hmm. showing it to me. Um, I thought the other interesting part you bore witness to the Plains, to Oklahoma, a place that you say a lot of people don't really acknowledge exists. And I know what you're saying about that. that people fly from the East Coast to the West Coast. They think of it as a vo- void. Um, we don't look into voids. That's scary. Plus, you don't know what you there, there might not be anything yeah. there and you, you don't know what to, you're looking for. It might be very microscopic. As you say, it might be fossils. Um, but I thought it was very interesting that you bore witness to this idea that there are certain places where we connect very deeply with ourselves inexplicably. I, I can certainly see the eyes of people that I've talked to where I've been trying to describe my connection to a certain place um, and, and they're, they're, they're glazing over. And I thought to myself, here is this book, this, in this book, you understand 
how we resonate with certain places. Some of them we don't have any explanation for because we've never been there before. We just, you know, get to that jagged coast of Ireland and look out and say, oh, my God, I, I feel everything. I feel, uh, you know, an- ancestors, the, the future, the past, everything. Um, wow. Certain landscapes are very evocative. And I just think the fact that you declared it and said, this is valid, and I actually kind of have proof at a cellular level, because we're all looking for proof, um, you know, is, is really, it's, it's really a, a contribution, this concept of home that you found. And also, you mentioned that the, the native, the indigenous tribes who were there never felt that they owned the land. That was a yes, white I man's, to, yeah, that yeah. was a white man's thank, concept, right? Thank you for bringing that up. Well, yes, I mean, I've done a lot of reading of of native uh, books, native you know writers through the years, and you know, uh, I really wanted to put it in there uh, about this whole concept of owning the land and that they did not see that way. And I, I, uh, my extended family lived in Iowa where my great, my grandmother's mother was Blanche. My great grandmother is an important part of my early story because she knew the history of all these people. And I started, uh, interviewing her when I was eight years old. Like, will you tell me what was going on around here? And yeah. they, the family lived on the banks of the, basically, on the banks of the Mississippi River. Well, here's some history. Here's some history of land and water. And uh, I did the research about the land that, that in Iowa that the family um, had. And I'd seen an original old house that there on that land when I was very young. And I did all this research. And basically, the, the Native peoples had just been chased away uh, to open those lands for the white people, which included my family, you know. And I just, it, it was kind of heartbreaking. And then there were stories from older people that I read in various memoirs and diaries from the Iowa uh, area. I did a lot of research about that area as well. And the older people would say, well, they used to come, the Indians, uh, to the back door and ask for food. Oh. I mean, you know, these stories were were still verbal stories passed down when I was a child, you know? So I was like, wow. I mean, speaking of history, I mean, it's everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. And I believe, I mean, this will sound kind of mystical too, I suppose, but I write, and and you're acknowledging this, that, that, uh, that the, the land remembers. Mm-hmm. You know, the land has its own memory, its own uh, kind of uh, imprint, imprint of history on it. And to me, that's kind of fascinating. I'm not the first person that said that. But to me, I could really see that and feel that there and in England and in France where I've done research. I mean, if we just think about it, you know, we can, mm-hmm. we can go to that arena. We can we can sense it. We can sense the imprint. We have we must pause for a break again. But I I do want to come back to this idea that um, you you know you you find this to be embedded in you, and also that it created in you. I think probably some sympathies to the outliers, to the Indians, to the native tribes mm-hmm. to to people who were displaced so that the land also creates a kind of an identity um, uh-huh. so when so when we come back we're going to talk to really the person the bomb of memoir is Linda Joy Myers who we're with right now and we'll talk about memoir we'll talk about what we would write if we were not afraid don't go away we'll be right back on dropping in America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. 
Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Linda Joy Myers, who is a person who has evolved as a writer, as a memoirist, and now to be a novelist. Um, and Linda Joy, I, I somehow picture you, you talk a lot about being wispy, feeling wispy as a young girl. No wonder you, you couldn't quite root yourself. You were, you were rooted in this landscape, but the immediate environment was hostile. Um, and you know your your home life was hostile. You then you then learned about yourself through mem- memoir. Let's let's go through that arc so that we can come out to where you are with um, the novel that you're writing. Mm-hmm. How, how does memoir? Okay, you 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 are also you know how does it work? How does it transport us? How does it make us learn about ourselves or allow us to learn about ourselves? How does memoir do that? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing of it is, uh, and anyone who's written or created anything knows this, is that we come to a a creative work, whether it's a painting, a dance, uh, or writing, but we'll talk about writing. We come with an idea. We come with thoughts and intentionality. And we begin to work with what we have. And then, oddly and interestingly, something else happens in the middle of that creative process, if we're lucky. I mean, if the something else doesn't happen, we're not quite tapped in to the stream of possibilities and literal creativity, creating something out of nothing that can happen. So we need to start with what we have but and, and make an outline and do our grounded work while staying open to the things that might come through us that are a surprise. And so when I started writing, I thought all I was doing was writing down what happened. This was like 25, 30 years ago, but writing down what happened. And that was what I was doing. Little did I know that it would lead me to to explore myself and my history. Well, but I didn't know about what happened there and I didn't know about this and I have to imagine that and I have to mostly figure out the meaning and what is my message, not just to a reader, because I wrote most of Don't Call Me Mother just out of desperation. Not, I didn't even think about publishing. I couldn't bear to think about anyone reading it either. I wrote it because it had to be written. And then gradually, you know, shaped it. But the encounter with creativity then uh, was the same feeling I had when I played music, you know, and when I was in the wheat field. And so I began to connect the dots between this feeling of creating with this other layer of being, whatever that is, within us. And therein is the reward beyond anything. You know, is that we're we're doing that dance with creativity itself. I love that it's an encounter. That just sounds, you know, I think that sounds so invitational. Invitational mm-hmm. to to come to a place where we're actually forgetting about ourselves. And maybe mm-hmm. the idea, you know, you, you call yourself a late bloomer. It's interesting that you're going to be coming to your first novel at this point. If I could just reveal in the, you know, reading of Song of the Plains, you we you go through quite a bit of education. You go through a couple practice marriages. Um, let's not, you know, like there is there is a few, and 
these lovely children that are born. Um, but you, I, I wondered if you just felt that you needed to have lots of preparation before you could speak, but then you found out, wow, you could have this encounter and you had everything you needed to go forward. Um, what, what was that arc like? Well, I have to say that, that part of how I can have that is through uh, the person who became my therapist and mentor and spiritual guide, really, through the years, whom I still speak with. Um, he showed me and told me, even starting in the 70s when I was really broken, just broken, uh, he brought that forward. He reminded me of things that I had forgotten about myself, some of the things I'm talking to you about today. Uh, in the brokenness, we don't see the light, you know, we just see the darkness. And so he always encouraged me to follow the spark uh, of creativity within me because he could see it even when I couldn't. And so thanks to him, and then he knew my whole story and has <laughs> all the stories through the years. And and when I would forget, he would just bring me back and say, hey, don't forget, you have this, you have this thing that is calling to you. Go and listen to it and work with it. And so I have. So I'm very blessed. I don't know what my life would have been like without that guidance. You know, I was a very lost for many years, thus the late blooming business, because really it took a long time to, to find it. But, you know, the blessing about memoir, and as I teach people memoir, uh, too, the, the blessing of memoir is that we go to the darkness. Some of, I mean, not all memoirs are dark, but there's some kind of challenge in every story. And in every memoir, something we're working with. And out of that and through that, we find new paths and we, we find or can search for the light. And I help people do that. I mean, there are many people who come to me for coaching and it's all, it's all pain and I hold that with them. But I say, you need to look for where the light was because here you are 85 years old and you survived all this. How did you do that? What else was happening to you? And Mm -hmm. so I'm passing on what my mentor taught to me, which is there's always more there. And you were able to create new pathways. I mean, we look at ourselves and realize that, you know, things are echoing from the past. We attract the same kind of person. We have, we put the same kind of challenges in front of ourselves. And yep. the, the, I think that the one role that, and I think that is such a redeeming role, is that you became empathic. You became sympathetic to to the outlier, to the person who's, you know, helping saving others. I wonder if you just touch on, um, and you became that yourself, I wonder if you would touch on your topic for your new novel mm-hmm. so that listeners can get a flavor for that. Well, thank you so much. Well, I discovered a story a few years ago uh, about a man named Varian Fry, who at the age of 32 went to France just, just a month after the fall of France with $3,000 taped to his leg to save artists and intellectuals that were on Hitler's kill list. Uh, Hitler was getting rid of anyone who would counter him all over Europe or wherever he could find them. And he ended up in Marseille and ended up for a year and a half working legally and a lot of illegally to save people by forging documents, passports, finding passages out of France into some safety, including taking people over the Pyrenees into Spain, where they could then get to Lisbon and a ship out to America. And he ended up uh, saving Chagall and Hannah Arendt and Max Ernst and André Masson and a lot of people that otherwise would have been killed. The artist Lipschitz, I think uh, Modigliani's brother, there's uh, many people that he saved beyond these famous people. And that story, I mean, I still read his memoir. I read the introduction to his memoir, which was written before the war was over, and I always cry. Mm-hmm. This man uh, really took risks uh, against all odds. And I suppose, in a way, 
I mean, he was an outlier for sure. He was lucky not to have been taken to a camp himself. Being American helped him. But so I got stuck. I said no to this story for five years. Finally, when I went to France a couple of years ago, I got tapped on the shoulder by a character that appeared on the top of the Pyrenees who whispered to me that I really needed to write this story. I'm still talking to the landscape, you know. Good. Even in the <laughs> and so this character, he, he said, yep, and he told me his name. And uh, so my main character is a woman artist who ends up leaving Berlin as a Jew with her mentor who is based on my violin teacher that I just told you about earlier. This uh-huh. character is based on him, and I'm just trying to make stuff up. I'm so used to, you know, what's the real story? So I'm doing both. I've got a foot in both camps in history and in creating something out of almost nothing, you know. Out of thin <laughs> and air. Learning. But, but your imagination, right? You're having the encounter. Mm-hmm. I think yep. that, you know, people are going to want to know um, where to find you. It's Linda Joy Myers, uh, author at uh, author.com as her website. Your Facebook is Linda Joy Myers, author. You do, uh, you are available for coaching and are accessible. I think that, you know, you've looked at a lot of imprisoning influences and liberating influences in your life. Believe it or not, we have just a couple of minutes left. But when you talk about this story and the fire in your belly that you have being drawn to it, I also see you, Linda Joy, as fighting a courageous fight. And woot woot, because Linda Joy on your mother's gravestone wrote, mother of Linda Joy, for, for a woman who continuously throughout her life disavowed you wouldn't introduce yep. you to people as her daughter or your grand or your you know her grandchildren your children yeah. I had the last word <laughs> you had the last word in that and I think you know you you put energy towards these fights and they gain momentum right mm-hmm. um do you feel that this is your legacy we have just a couple minutes mm-hmm. left but is mm-hmm. that is that part of it well, the legacy is is really to 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 give people permission and encouragement that I was blessed to get from my mentors, my writing teachers, my therapists, and so on. Is you know honor yourself and honor your story, honor your voice. Uh, don't be swept aside. You know, fight back against those who will silence you. I have a whole program on breaking silence. And it's it's touched on in some of my books. Uh, what is I, I I'm old, much older now, but I have more of a voice now than I've ever had in my life. But it was slow going for a time, and the way to get that voice is sentence by sentence, word by word. You know, just just keep doing it and get support and get help and and you know share your vision so others can lift you up while you develop it and then share share it with the larger world, which which helps all of us. I mean, we're all made better by all the art that gets created. Truly. And the voice, it, it does get built block by block, word by word, even if it's verbal um, or written. And thank you very much, Linda Joy Myers, for sharing your words, your thoughts, your heart with us today. The um, thanks also go to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Giolino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe, get outdoors, Find your voice here at Voice America. We do believe in that. And we feel that we've got a great co-conspirator in Linda Joy Myers in that. It's a new day. So till next week, thank you so much for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.